The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, let me encourage you to find a Bible and let's open together to Genesis 19. It's been about four weeks, four weeks, and now we are headed back to the book of Genesis and continuing in our series on the faith of our father, the life of Abraham. Again, we're turning back to Genesis 19 and we're finishing that chapter today. And so let me assure you that you will most definitely want to be opening and following along with us as we hear and then understand God's word in Genesis 19. So please do make sure you have your Bible so you can follow along and grab one from the pew rack if you don't have one. As you're turning there, let's remember some, some brief words of context. Four weeks ago, when we left Genesis 19, uh, we left the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in destruction. And what followed from that uh, brought about, actually, in, in our church, a great bit of discussion and conversation among many people who were interested in learning more. And they had lots of questions about how we make sense of these things. And there was a lot going on in the first half of Genesis 19. And although the rest of Genesis 19 is a shorter amount of text, there is equally as much going on here at the close of Genesis 19. Now, I do not want to rehash what we did in the first part of Genesis 19, except to say this very clearly, that when the Bible depicts an act of God's judgment, and to be clear, that's what Genesis 19 is largely about when the Bible depicts an act of God's judgment. God's judgment is never off the cuff or arbitrary. Any judgment of God is always depicted as that which is just and right. As Abraham asked the question in chapter 18, shall the judge of the earth do what is right? And the answer to that question is always what? Yes. Genesis 19 depicted a just and righteous judgment. And the account of Sodom and Gomorrah stands as a reminder to us, yes, about the perversions and consequences of human depravity, especially sexual sin, but we also want to remember the fact that the Lord Jesus told us that it is better for the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for those who reject Jesus Christ on the last day. That whatever horror we experience and repulsion we experience about judgment from Genesis 19, Jesus says that is nothing compared to the just judgment of those who have rejected Jesus Christ ultimately. And so Genesis 19 was saying to us, do not reject God's mercy. Do not reject God's kindness. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah called us to flee from our sins and flee to the one who has grace to pardon our sins. But today, we look back on Abraham's nephew, Lot. And Lot was one of just three people who escaped the judgment of Sodom with his two daughters. And we will see in very, uh, unfortunately, somewhat graphic detail that although Lot and his daughters has escaped Sodom, Sodom has not entirely left Lot and his daughters. Now, fair warning and disclaimer, and uh, parents, in your wise exercise, 
Uh, if you feel in your wisdom that this is not best for your children to, to hear, uh, exercise your parental rights and, and save time for them later. Nevertheless, friends, this is God's word. And so before we hear it, let us pray and ask his blessing upon it that our minds might be illuminated with understanding. Let's pray. Our great God, we bow before you in your presence, thankful that you are the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, the God who establishes all morality and truth, and the God who does what is altogether righteous. And so, Lord, we pray with humility that as we approach your word, we confess, Lord, that our minds are often darkened and we need the illumination of your spirit to understand the Bible. Lord, you've not given us your word to confuse us or cast us off into deception or suffer under a lack of clarity. And so, Lord, come in the power of your spirit to give us understanding, to give us proper application, to again illuminate our minds, make our hearts ready to receive and our ears willing to hear all that you would teach us. In the authority of your word, we ask now in the power of Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. And now hear God's word in Genesis 19, beginning at verse 30 through the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, and we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts. And now that you've heard the text, several words of introduction, if you like. Here in this text, we see unequivocally Lot's disgrace. But in Lot's disgrace, there is something, in fact, many things that you and I need to know to walk through this life faithfully. And so there is great purpose for this text here today, although you may be interested to know that there are some Bible commentators and scholars who totally skip this portion of Genesis 
in their commentaries. In fact, when Calvin's commentaries were translated from Latin into English, the commentators made the decision to not include this text altogether because it was their opinion at this time that this is a text that is not appropriate to preach. You have to think about what you think about that. But you can understand the temptation to skip this text, can't you? There is not a preacher in his right mind who would randomly come to this text and decide to preach it. Which is why it's important for us to remember that our commitments in this church to sequential expository preaching are a blessing in the sense that it does not allow us to skip over things that appear inconvenient or awkward in the name of more appropriate things seemingly so that we can avoid these topics. People, we cannot avoid these topics. And let's remember the fact that the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture, every word of the Bible, is breathed out by God and profitable for us. And so that means that Genesis 19 is profitable for you and I as Christian believers. And so we need to be asking the question, how and why is it profitable? And hopefully we can come to that kind of conclusion today. So suffice it to say that there is a benefit for you to be in church under the preaching of Genesis 19 today. And in order to understand what that benefit is, I want us to ask three questions, even though you might have many more questions. And those three questions are, where, what, and why? Where, what, and why? So look at the text, and just in very summary format, let me say that in verse 30, we see where Lot is. And then in verses 31 to 35, we see what is happening in the midst of this very sad family sin. And then finally, in verses 36 to 38, we see in summary fashion why. Where, what, and why at the conclusion of Genesis 19. So first, in verse 30, let's look back to where Lot is. And we were told in verse 30 about Lot's relocation. Look again at verse 30, that it says that Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. Now I know it's been some time, but let's remember the context that earlier in chapter 19, Lot was instructed to flee all the way out of Sodom and go into the mountains, but it was Lot's idea to not go as far as the mountains, but rather to go only as far as Zoar. Look back at verse 20 earlier in this chapter. Verse 20 says, Lot says, this city is near enough for me to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And Lot was talking about Zoar. In Zoar, I'll find a place of refuge. In Zoar, I'll be safe. And this little town that Lot thinks will be a place of refuge for him, a place of salvation, a place of deliverance, seemingly quickly becomes, we find in verse 30, place of fear that the place that offered respite and peace and protection very quickly betrays that sense of comfort and becomes a place in which he is afraid now we don't know why per se we don't know why Lot is afraid of Zoar why he's filled with fear living there even though it's such a small town that he thought would be protected in 
Although you could imagine a number of things, perhaps why Lot would be afraid of Zoar. Maybe there were people there in that city who, even though it was small, recognized Lot. We know you. You're from that city, that city that was destroyed. And have you brought with you why that city was destroyed and disrupted our peaceful town? Maybe that filled him with fear. We don't know. Have you brought Sodom's morals with you? Uh, We don't know any of those things, but suffice it to say that Lot was told that he could dwell in Zoar without fear. Again, look at verse 21. Back in 21, God promised Lot that that city will not be overthrown. You want to go to Zoar? Fine. You'll be protected there. But yet, Lot is characterized by fear. He is characterized by a lack of faith. He flees the city of Zoar, which used to be such a place of comfort to him, now becomes a place of fear, foregoes God's protection in Zoar, and with fear flees to the hills to live in a cave. Now, we have this detail, I think, to demonstrate that Lot's life has been a continual decline of falling apart both morally and spiritually. Think of the fact that when we first met Lot, he was living within the blessings of Abraham's tent and of his family. He chose to leave the context of the blessing of Abraham's house and go live near Sodom and then in Sodom in a place of prominence. And now he's gone from Sodom's tent, or sorry, Abraham's house to Sodom's house and now isolated in a cave. And what we are supposed to see in Lot is a man of fear rather than faith. A man of disrupted conscience rather than a settled peace. A man who has isolated himself from the source of blessing and protection. And I think the question that I've asked most about this text is, why didn't Lot go back to Abraham's house? Lot is Abraham's nephew. Why didn't he go back? It's been more than a decade since Lot last saw Abraham. Was it too much time? Too much water under the bridge. Too much has gone past. Too many things unsaid, perhaps, that would leave Lot with the conclusion that he can't go back to his uncle. Did he fear rejection by Abraham, the man of faith, and Lot, the man who's experienced so much in his life? What does that remind you of it reminds me of Luke chapter 15 in the prodigal son, doesn't it? That Lot is something of the prodigal nephew who doesn't come to his senses and instead strays further and further away from the source of his blessing. Now, here's a point some of us have been the prodigal, some of us have strayed in wayward unfaithfulness from the source of our blessing and decided that the household of God is not a fit place for my enjoyment and so I'm going to wander away from it. Some of us have been the wandering prodigal lost in a foreign country, but some of us have also been in the shoes of Abraham, haven't we? Some of us who stand far off watching the wayward child 
or the wayward grandchild or the wayward niece or nephew wander off into the far country and our hearts break as we watch them stray and they break and they break to such a degree that they perhaps become hardened to the memory of that person saying they've gotten what they've deserved. But if we can impose on the text here for a moment, maybe we can wonder that if Lot had the absolute assurance that no matter the history and no matter what's happened, that he could go back to Abraham's household and be received with open arms, maybe he would have gone back. Hear this very clearly that it is possible to reject the morality of Sodom without rejecting Lot. It is possible to reject the morality of Sodom without rejecting Lot. What a sorrowful thing it would be if someone we love comes to the conclusion that I have sinned myself out of the favor of God's grace and I cannot come back. In the gospel, we learn that the father always welcomes the sinner home, doesn't he? No matter how far they have strayed, no matter the water under the bridge, no matter the history, when they come by faith and repentance, and so, dear friends, let us do the same to welcome back any wandering sinner. But tragically, we see that Lot flees Abraham and flees Sodom, but Sodom is still very much with Lot. So we've seen where he is, but now secondly, in verses 31 to 35, in that very awful cave, we see what happens in Lot's life. And again, to be clear, these things that are depicted here are heinous and sinful things reported in these verses in these verses and here we learn that sin often has consequences of further sin and again hear this word of disclaimer especially to parents and grandparents that the bible reports this activity in the language that it does with a fair amount of discretion but i want to remind you that if this preaching text promotes awkward conversations with children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews or awkward conversations among your lunch table later today, it is better that you be the one having these conversations with your children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and friends. It is better that you be the one taking the responsibility to have the conversation about these topics because your children will learn their morality from somewhere and if it is not from you with your convictions, their convictions will be shaped by another. It is your responsibility. Do not allow your discomfort or awkwardness to give you permission to not take up your responsibility to speak about sexual morality with those whom you love. So we see that Lot's daughters, like their father, are also living in fear. They say in verse 31, look there in verse 31, there is not another man on earth 
it's somewhat a hyperbole, isn't it? It's an exaggerated statement, but it could also be translated, there is not another man in this region. And that's because everybody else they know is gone. Even though they lived in Zoar for some time, those people are still there, but everyone they knew from Sodom is gone. They're worried about their future family. They have progeny on their mind, future children, and they say there's nobody else. All the other men on earth are gone. And this is a statement that is an exaggeration that's fueled by fear and leads them to a decision not based on reality and deeply sinful. But notice that they've made an idol out of children. That in their minds, children are so important that it is more important than obeying God. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. When you've made a decision that you love something or will do anything for this, that is now your idol and you worship it. And for Lot's daughters, they forsook their faith in the covenant God for the sake of children because children were their idol. And now we see what happens. Now you might find it very interesting that the activity that's reported here in every single ancient Eastern culture is regarded as an abomination. There are some cultures in the ancient world that practice things that the Bible forbids for sure. And last week, or four weeks ago, we saw one of those practices. But the practice of homosexuality in that era was accepted in other cultures. But this practice of incense is not accepted in any culture. That is to say that it is written upon the conscience of all created beings that this is wrong. Still, to Lot's shame, we see his daughter's decisions. Now, you should ask yourself this question, or maybe you don't want to, perhaps, I'm not sure. Where did Lot's daughters come to this conclusion and come up with this idea that this would be a good thing? Where have they learned this? And the answer is, is based upon their prior residency. And disgracefully from within their own household, from their father, they have learned this tactic. Now you say, what does that mean? Do you remember in Genesis 19 when the angels come to Sodom and they come to Lot's house and Lot, in order to protect the angels, says to the people who are groping at the door, what? You can have my daughters instead. Do you remember that? That Lot sins against his daughters and without their consent offers them up on the altar of sensuality. Without their consent. And now, Lot's daughters will, without their father's consent, do the same thing, except this time the action will be carried out. And you might find it interesting, again, that the commentators and scholars like to debate who's to blame here? Who's more responsible for this? Disgraceful for sure, but who's to blame? Is it Lot's fault or is it his daughter's fault? And they say, well, it's his daughter's because Lot was drunk, as if that's some kind of excuse. There is sufficient blame to go all around in this text. Do not excuse anything here. And remember the fact that the Bible reports activity of human sinfulness without condoning it. The Bible can tell the story without approval. 
Some people are shocked to learn that this is even in the Bible in the first place. Maybe that's you. But recognize the fact that the Bible reports this activity without condoning it because the Bible tells the truth about humanity and its fallen nature. That what sin does is it twists and distorts reality to such a place that this conclusion, which we understand and every culture understands to be reprehensible, becomes, in the ideas of Lot's daughters, not only a reasonable idea, but a good one. That's what sin does. So the attention is on the action of Lot's daughters, unrighteous actions for sure, sinful actions, but what about Lot? What about dad? Well, we can say many things that he is in the dark, literally and metaphorically, right? In one sense, because he's where? He's in a cave. And these actions are reported to happen twice at night. Does it get much more dark than in a cave at night? But also metaphorically to suggest that what happens in this dark cave at night is also an act of darkness. But in another sense, Lot is in the dark here because he is seemingly unaware. Twice the emphasis is made, verse 33, verse 35, look at that. Verse 33, verse 35, he doesn't know. Lot is in the dark, literally, physically, but also in the sense that he is ignorant. But is ignorance an excuse for sin? The answer is no. Now, I imagine that this text stirs up any number of emotions in you, and it ought to. Perhaps it should say this to us, that Lot is the father of these two daughters. And fathers are intended to be the source of protection for their children. It is of biblical mandate, Dad, that you are a protector. Something rises in you, and it should, when you hear that. God wrote that upon your heart, and it's good that you feel that way. Whether you are a, a husband, a father, a grandfather, an uncle, it doesn't matter who you are. That should rise in you because God has made you to feel that. But it also makes us to realize that it falls on the responsibility of parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts to shape their children that our children's development is not the act of some random evolutionary process, but that our children need to be positively instructed and taught. And these two girls are just doing what their culture has taught them to do in terms of pushing the boundary even of what is acceptable at that time, which all the more reminds us of the importance to give positive instruction to our children in the words of Proverbs 22, to train them in the way they should go so they will not depart from it when they are older. It is your responsibility. It is not another's. Another application we could give here as a word of caution very quickly is that the Bible nowhere forbids the enjoyment of wine or strong drink. The Bible nowhere forbids the enjoyment of it, but what does it forbid? The abuse of it. Is it clear 
that this is involved in this, without a doubt, this is an example. We could say those things, we could say more things, but in summary fashion, in between verse 36 and verse 37, nine months seemingly passes by without any evaluation or narrative from Lot. Is he sympathetic? Is he hostile? Is he mad? Is he frustrated? Is he totally ignorant? We have no idea. Not a clue. And yet, here is this activity. So we've seen the where, we've seen the what, and maybe you were waiting for this, the third question, why? Why? Why is this here? Why would you preach this text on Memorial Day weekend and graduation Sunday? And Well, because it's the next text in Genesis, but also because there are at least two answers to the question why here for us. There is an immediate answer to why this text is in the Bible, and then there is also another answer that will take thousands of years to materialize the answer for. The immediate answer is that the text explains, doesn't it? Verse 36 says, Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. Verse 37, The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. Verse 38, The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites. Moses has placed this text at the end of Genesis 19 under divine inspiration to give us the historical understanding of where the Moabites and the Ammonites come from, right? What is the history of the Moabites and the Ammonites? They come from Lot's daughters. But what we might not know just immediately is that these two tribes, the Moabites, the Ammonites, are going to be a people who are of constant threat to the people of Israel. They're constantly going to be attacking Israel, constantly going to be drawing Israel away from covenant faithfulness. They live to the east of the Jordan River, outside the Promised Land, and they constantly try to draw Israel away from their faith in God. They actively draw Israel away. Hear this from Numbers chapter 25, speaking of the Moabites, Numbers 25 says this, The people of Israel began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And Israel joins together with the Moabites in this pagan false worship to this god Baal. That's who the Moabites are. What about the Ammonites? The Ammonites, who are also known in Leviticus chapter 18 to worship their false god called Molech, and one of the characteristics of Molech worship was actually child sacrifice. The Ammonites worshipped Molech by offering their children to death. Leviticus 18 says this, Neither shall you, Israel, give any of your offspring to them, to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And here is Moses explaining to Israel, where do you think these pagan practices come from? Where did they begin? They began with this sinful activity. But he's not just saying that. He's not just saying those Moabites, those Ammonites, they're up to no good. He's trying to explain the fact that when sin corrupts a family unit and a culture, it has lingering effects through the generations. 
that Lot's daughters, who were raised to know the true God, their children went on to pursue Baal and Molech rather than Yahweh. It's a standing warning to all people who transgress the covenant, whether they are Moabites or Ammonites or Israelites or members of Edgington, that the worship of other gods, Molech, Baal, money, sex, is all idolatry, and that it is only to the one true God, Yahweh, that worship should be truly offered. When we reject God's lordship, we expect to receive curse and judgment. So here is this genealogical word of warning. Now everybody take a deep breath because right next to this genealogical word of warning is the incredible thread of the story of God's grace. Lot is going to fall off the pages of the Old Testament. He will not be spoken of again. He will only be referenced in the New Testament. But Lot's story and the story of Lot's disgrace is actually a part of God's great story. That there is grace in spite of sin because although the Moabite people are a part of the idolatry and waywardness of Israel, it is going to be a Moabite woman who will be the grandmother of none other than great King David. And ultimately, a Moabite woman placed in the genealogical heritage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is that woman? Ruth. What is Ruth's family story according to Genesis 19? Sin and disgrace and idolatry and wickedness. What is Ruth's family story according to the gospel? Grace and forgiveness and the washing away of shame. This is beautiful. Do you see it? That God brings the wayward, idol-worshiping sinner into the shelter of his covenant family to bless and protect and keep. And he still does. Do not miss this. There is a mountain of disgrace in this passage. But God's grace levels the mountains of our disgrace and brings forgiveness and mercy. This is breathtaking and astounding. A tidal wave of mercy to level the mountains of our sin in the gospel of his son. We see the gospel of the Lord Jesus foreshadowed in Lot's disgrace. You see, God delights to turn our sin into his righteousness and the judgment that we deserve into the occasion for his grace. Is it profitable for you to sit under the preaching of Genesis 19? Absolutely. Because in ways perhaps you never imagined, Genesis 19 preaches the gospel to us, calls us away from our sins, and to the one in whom there is forgiveness. What a savior, what a God, and what a story of his grace. Amen, let us pray. Father, we thank you 
that in astounding ways you move through means we would have never anticipated. A story that you tell in the Bible that is beyond words, something that we could never come up with, and yet you are the God of salvation, the God of grace, in whom there is forgiveness. And so, Lord, to you we offer our praise. To you we give our hearts again. Help us to walk in the paths of righteousness, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.